Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. Okay, you turn friends. Today comes Linda Rossetti. She's a pioneering re- writer, researcher, business leader, and she's really committed to advancing our understanding of transformation and growth in our adult lives, which I feel like I can't state enough. Like there's so many of us that transition into adulthood or the workforce after college, and that transition can feel like it takes years to really own being an adult. There's so many times I've looked around and thought to myself, that's a shitty problem. Who's going to do that? And then I realized, oh, it's me. (laughs) She's a well-known author and speaker, and she has her new book called Dancing with Disruption. It has raving reviews on Amazon. It's all about a new approach to navigating life's biggest changes. This episode is all about transition and change. I'm going to talk to her about some of her hacks for you better navigating it. Thank you so much, Linda, for coming on. Ashley, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you have a very sweet energy to you. It's really nice to, you know, sometimes I'm in a blob kind of a mood. And I admit today I was in a little blobby of a mood. And I blob just meaning I just want to lay around, you know, and I saw your face. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Thank you again. It's such a pleasure. And uh, I agree. This will be awesome. And I can't wait to talk about it because so many of us, you know, we get to these moments where we're like, wait a minute, I don't know who I am anymore or I don't know what to do, or I've failed. And all these really interesting kind of realizations about where we're at come up. And the reason why I do my work, Ashley, is because society kind of conditions us to like run the other way or tamp those down. Like it's very impolitic to kind of foster those questions and really think about what's happening. And, you know, my goal, right, my work is all about starting a new conversation when those questions come up because Mm -hmm. they can be incredible inflection points for us. You know, it's interesting because the topic of change is actually a hard one and an easy one for me to talk about. It's hard because it's so easy for me to step into change. I've thrived in that. I don't know if it's that I'm a Gemini and I like new and novelty or freedom or what it is, but it's almost hard for me to really tune into the fear of change because I've always found it so invigorating. But I know that a lot of people have a lot of fear with change. So what would be your initial message for people who are maybe listening and thinking to themselves, like, I'm in so much transition. I feel like life is always in transition, like 100% of the time. What would you say to them? You know, my first thing would be um, nothing to fear, right? Uh, the, uh, The most incredible thing is that because we maybe, you know, I've done research for more than a decade in this field. And so what I learned through doing is that We really don't have a great understanding of what's happening when we're going through these, you know, major changes in our lives. And if we add a little kind of, you know, oxygen to it and and take a minute to understand what's happening, the fear level goes way down, first of all. And then, you know, we have this opportunity for opening because really a lot of these realizations like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do next? So fear about change is really a signal that growth is possible. More is possible. And right. we have to kind of get at it. And there's a couple of things we can talk about right now. There's some vocabulary we can play with, but there's also in my book, I, I talk about this emotional reframing technique, which I think would be really interesting to chat about because it helps us 
diffuse really strong oppositional emotions like fear and keep going, right? Because that ultimately that's the thing, right? We don't want to get like sidetracked because we have, you know, our anxiety is this over the top or we're sad or regretful. It's like, okay, we can have all those emotions, but how about we, you know, kind of dance with them in a little different way? Okay. So I love this and I have some weird examples to kind of help us ground this even more. There's a reality television show on Bravo called Vanderpump Rules and you don't strike me as a viewer, which I think is wonderful. But It's a reality show about a restaurant and all the waiters and waitresses start off as good friends and then they become influencers because the show's been around for a while. Okay. And eventually in this past season, which I don't watch the show, but it feels like it broke the internet because the drama was just so high that people started posting about it. There's a couple that have been together nine years on the show and the guy cheated on the girl with one of their best friends and it was ongoing for seven months. So they it came out and I was, I didn't want to watch the whole season because I haven't watched the show in like five years. But by the time I saw the 20th Instagram post about it, I'm like, I need to watch this. And, you know, God bless my dad. I call him. I'm like, I'm watching Vanderpump Rules, the reunion. He's like, part one, part two or part three. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you've been watching. <laughs> okay, dad. Okay, dad. But I ended up watching this and what struck me the most was people do things that are painful. People do things out of self-sabotage or whatever it is. We're all humans. You know, I had an expert on relationships come on and talk about 50 to 70 percent of people cheat in their relationships. We are human. We are flawed. Things happen. But what struck me the most when I watched the show was how much shaming the people who felt were in the right and how much dehumanizing they did towards the people in the wrong. And as someone who studied political affairs, it really shook me a bit because I know that dehumanization is like the first step towards like genocide. But my point is, I was so shook by how mean the people in the right allegedly are towards the people in the wrong not seeing their humanity. And I get people are hurt and sad, but it's like these life reckonings that we all have where like somebody gets cheated on, someone dies, you lose your job and it's like change is thrown on you. And from a common sense standpoint, it was coming, right? Like a lot of the times we're not totally blindsided. What would be your initial message to someone who feels like they're straight in the reckoning right now? Where do they begin forgiving themselves, processing it, just anything around that. I love it. And so I have two things I want to say to that, right? Well, I love the fact that you brought up shame because it's so common in the work that I do, right? So many people carry shame, whether they're on the receiving end of something crummy, like somebody cheating on them, or even if they're in a different position at the table, right? Shame is just such a common emotion, right? So the first thing I would say is it helps to just take a step back and ask yourself what's really happening. And one of the things that I learned in my research, right, because I sat with people who were going through all these major crises, and some of them were brought on by good things, like a milestone that they expected, like a remarriage. But other things were like, you know, out of the left field and they had no, no prep for it. And so the first thing is to think about what happens, right, when we encounter these things. I call those things disruptions because they actually challenge our sense of our self-concept, like how we think about ourselves. You know, okay, I'm a restaurateur or I'm a you know, I'm a capable person. However we think about ourselves, the disruptions that I care about are ones that cause us to question who we are. 
And what I found is that at those times, we actually have choices that a lot of times we don't see. And there are two that are really important to change or transition. And even though we're taught to use those terms interchangeably in our world, they mean really different things when we're met with this kind of a disruption, right? When we encounter disruption, right? So our identity, the way we think of ourselves gets totally upended, right? You know, our partner cheats, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. When we choose change at that moment, what we're really doing is we're looking for kind of a goal-oriented outcome right? We want to, at that moment, keep our sense of self intact and make a variation or alteration that quiets down the chaos and the noise. But we're not really moving our thinking about who we are. Mm. But when we meet that same disruption with transition, what we're doing is we're re-examining the assumptions that we set our definition and expectation for who we are on, right? You know, like how we define ourselves. And when we're willing to recognize that shift, we open an entire like yellow brick road in front of us, right? But what that means to do that is to welcome instability for a time. And mm-hmm. that can be terrifying, right? That can be terrifying because when we choose it, when we recognize, you know, this is a time for a transition, we're at this moment where, you know, we don't know the outcome, right? When we choose a change, we know the outcome. It's like, okay, I'm going to get a new hairstyle. I'm going to get a new apartment. I'm going to move cities. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to get a new spouse, partner, friend, whatever. But when we step into transition, we, we're not, we don't really have the clarity of the outcome. And it's really important because it can spin up all sorts of emotions, right? So the first thing I'd say is take a, you know, take a little beat and try to think about you know, exactly how you want to respond because mm-hmm. that's really important first step. And the second is to recognize that the emotions that mobilize, like shame, a lot of times mobilized to keep us safe, right? Mm -hmm. So our emotional system like knows our experience and it's going to throw emotions towards us that can kind of staple our feet to the floor. Mm -hmm. And so what I've learned in my work, right? I took 80 people and and had them work with me in developing this technique, which allows us to take an oppositional emotion. Like shame can really shut us down. You know, we can draw inward, we, you know, all sorts of things. And it helps us be different with that, right? It's as if you and I were standing on a street corner and I said, hey, Ashley, I want you to draw that skyscraper that's right in front of us. And you draw it. And then I said, okay, come with me. And we cross the street and we go up in the elevator and we stand on the roof of a building across the street. And I say, okay, now draw that same skyscraper, right? The technique allows us to see the emotion in an entirely different way, right? Because the the two perspectives are very different. And in that, it allows us to kind of release the power that the emotion has over us, right? Mm. You know, it's as if, you know, I tell this story, there was this woman, Lakshmi, who was part of my research, right? And she, she was doing this very fancy MD, PhD program at this Big Ten University in the Midwest. And, you know, she had been at this for more than a decade, right? She had gone to school and was in late stages of school. And she said, you know, I woke up and she said, I realized this isn't who I want to be. She said it was shocking. And she said it was just a total meltdown. She said, I never even dreamed outside of being that. And so what this technique Hale allowed her to do was to try to honor the emotions, like recognize the shame and saying, oh my goodness, I can't be, I don't want to be, it doesn't make any sense for me to be that. And allowed her to kind of move forward in a way that didn't kind of deny or bypass the emotions, which we're really good at this and in our society. And it allowed her to get power from it. So let me be quiet and see if you have any questions. And then we can go further if you want. Yeah, no, you're, there's so much insight here. I would say the first question I have is some, how does somebody know 
when that moment is actually the moment. Because we all have, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for like 13, 14 years, and there have been some weird moments where I'm like, I just want to be a waitress and connect with people and have snacks all day and be simple with this. So it's almost like, how do you know when the reckoning is the reckoning and you're just having thoughts float on by when it comes to dancing with disruption and getting to know yourself and actually stepping into the change? You know, in the book, in every chapter of the book, I offer reflection exercises, right? So in each of the 10 chapters, there's exercises to help you answer that question, right? But just for the listeners, you know, the first thing I would say is we need to really think differently about our emotions, like respond differently to the presence of our emotions so we can slow down our thinking about, should I just be a waitress? And I don't mean just, it's a lovely thing to do. I've waitressed many years in my life, but is it this the moment where I want to make that choice or not? And so really changing our relationship with our emotions is the first thing. And then in the book, you know, there's a a really cool exercise about choice, right? And it asks people to think about how they've made major choices in their lives and to look for the patterns. Because it's fascinating, Ashley, if you take a step back and say, okay, you know, when I left college, I tried this and then I did this and this. It's fascinating how you can see the patterns and looking at that, what comes out of that exercise allows you to ask yourself a different question at this moment, like to say, is this the time? Mm-hmm. And it, it helps you strip away some of the noise that might be causing you to say, okay, wait a minute, am I really going away from something or towards something? And and that's an excellent exercise to really ask about what's really happening. And mm-hmm. you know, that's what I'd say first. I love the idea of looking at the past because it's just, it's data, right? On how we behave, how we show up. Granted, we change. So sometimes... I feel like, how am I supposed to look at the past? I'm not that girl anymore. Like, I've changed so much. So I guess a lot of these questions I'm asking you is about trusting yourself in the face of making these changes. Like, you know, trusting the voice that you hear in your head that tells you you're done with this degree and it's time to drop out or whatever those massive changes are. I've made some huge changes in my life. All of them have been great. Like, I don't think I can look back on any huge change and say, that didn't work out for me. You know, which I think is really interesting about crisis is most of the time we look back and it served us in some way. Yeah, I I guess I'm curious, like any messages you have around clarity, trusting yourself and knowing when it is time to honor the change. So it's interesting you ask that because, you know, I sat down with more than 300 people to do this research about what was happening at these times. And most of the people came in the room to talk to me and they thought that the change was about some decision or event like, oh, should I become an entrepreneur or should I leave my spouse or should I quit quit school or cho- choose a new career? And while all of those things can accompany a transition, the only, the one only common denominator in transitions is we're turning up the volume on our own voices. And when I say voice, I don't really mean like what you hear audibly what I say. What I'm saying is turning up the volume on our truth, like really trying to think about what it is that holds value and meaning to us, Mm. not something we've adopted from someone around, but getting closer and closer to what that means for us. And and that isn't binary. Like all of a sudden we wake up one day and voila, we know we have our voice because there's a whole process of really delayering what other people have helped us believe is our truth and trying to get at, you know, what it is that's really, really alive and exciting and enlivening for us. But then we have to make the choice to act in alignment with that, right? And those are two different things. I remember that these two ladies that came up to me at the end of this really um, funky seminar I did out in Chicago, 
And one lady was in tears and she said, you know, Linda, I can hear my voice. It's screaming at me. But she was terrified to take the next step because she felt that the consequences of taking that step and maybe being wrong were really just overwhelming. And then a lady came up right next to her and she was like being silly. And she put her hand above her eyebrows, like as if she was like a seafarer looking for like distant lands. And she's like, you know, I haven't heard my voice in 20 years. Right. So I, I think I just, I want to honor for our listeners that, you know, while a lot of us talk about voice and we can go online and hear about voice in a million ways, there's some very real work that needs to happen to kind of recognize and bring our awareness to what it is and then choose to act in alignment. And it isn't just like one swing of the bat, like voila, we're here. It takes a lot of iterative steps. And my work really just encourages that conversation to begin and to, you know, either happen for us, but also to happen in connection with others. Okay, so let's say somebody's past these points. They realize that they're in the face of change. They trust that they're making the right, you know, choice, whatever it is, or they're navigating it. How do they start to make art of that change? How do they start to, like you say in your book, Dancing with Disruption, how do they dance with it? Yeah. So there's in the book, there are four steps that come out of the research that I did that were repetitively part of people's experience, right? There's reimagining our identity, right? There's resetting expectations. There's reconstituting our connections and reframing our emotions, which we've said a little bit about. But those are the things that really stand at the core of being able to make these kind of movements, right? And I can say a minute about them if you want. or we Yeah, can- I would love that. Let's go into each one. That would be great. Yes. You know, so resetting our expectations, that's the first one. You know, you know, Lakshmi, who I mentioned before, was the woman who jumped out of a, you know, a long-term commitment to a career while she was in her early 30s. She had been at it for, you know, more than a decade. And she's like, you know, I never really even dreamed outside of that. And when she started to think about it, she was aware that the assumptions that she held were really those that she adopted based on how people had reacted to her over her life, right? Like she always thought she needed to be smart. So that's the person she was going to be. She was going to be smart. And people reacted and kind of reinforced that. And so when she had to step out of this and really think about, you know, what expectations she carried just for her, there's real work in doing it. And and she was so amazed, right? Because she popped out and joined AmeriCorps um, Mm. while she kind of, you know, figured out what her next step would be. And she was so fascinated. She said, you know, I never thought I was funny. And she said, I never thought I could be a leader. And she said, you know, that's how people described me, Mm. you know, so I got out of this vortex. And so the expectations that we carried for ourselves, some of them we're not aware of, and some of them we meet, you know, through our connections with others, right? So my first heads up to people would be to think about those things and, and don't think you have to sit in a corner to do it. You know, we oftentimes meet ourselves through our connection with others, but really resetting the expectations we carry is one of the first and best steps. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I imagine this is really empowering. And I think a lot of our identity comes from our family, right? Like we, I was just thinking the other day, I'm 36 years old. I've still been living under my parents' rules longer than I've been living under my own. Like I lived under their life. Even if I went to college at 18, I kind of came back and forth. I was financially dependent on them until I was like 21. So 21 years of their rules and their thinking. And my parents are great and they're human, right? So 
I have my dad thinks I'm really quick. My uncle thinks I'm a princess. And it's so funny. I start dating in New York and all these men are like, you're the most low maintenance girl I've ever dated. And I was like, that's so weird. My uncles call me a princess. And they're like, you're definitely not a princess. So it was so healing to kind of like dabble in new identities. I guess my question is like, are there certain situations, circumstances that we can start to put ourselves in based on your research that help us get these answers? Because it sounds like the person you're talking about, she traveled or took on a new professional capacity. Like, what are some things that maybe are even lower hanging fruit, less extreme that maybe people can do today to start to kind of self-identify? Absolutely. And my immediate response is find a community, an individual, a group of people who can ask one single question of you. Why not? Right. Because so many people around us can only see our invisible walls. Like and when, when people are going through a transition, right? Oftentimes our first instincts are to turn to the people closest to us for support, right? Spouses, best friends, family members. And the reality is, if you look at the scholarly research in this area, all of those people have an interest in you staying the same, right? Because their need is for you to stay the same for their own stability, right? So I don't, I'm not arguing that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying get rid of those people. And I'm saying the best thing you can do is seek a community connection in an area of interest of yours, right? You know, some people, you know, volunteer, some people join, you know, an a zo- online Zoom group. You know, I, I host a free weekly Zoom group for people who want to stop in simply for this, right? So that they can begin to talk to people who don't see their walls. And so that's the best person. And it can happen in any environment. It can happen with a new person at work who you don't really know and you just, you know, share a sandwich with over Zoom one day. You know, it can happen anywhere. It's just take one step in the direction of your interest and connect with someone who can say, why not? I love this a lot. And I think that there is so much power in conversations, like not just conversations, the conversations with people that are not in your normal capacity, not in your normal space. I I moved to New York after a breakup, you know, a few years ago. And it was so awesome for me to like just steep like a little tea bag in a whole different world and you, that is how you, it's such a hack to learning so much about, I, that's what I love about moving. I've come to find that it, moving is growing, except when you move too much and then it's just self-sabotage, I think, because you don't get roots with anything. You don't, you, you spend all your time just accustomed, you know, getting accustomed to new spots. Absolutely. Um, it is interesting. Oh, go ahead. Let me let you don't tell me what you think. I want to hear. It was a woman who was in my research who was, you know, like a serial expat, like every two years she would move. And that was her thing. It was her shield, right? Mm-hmm. She never really had to get to know people deeply or her place deeply because she was always either packing or unpacking ready for the next. Right. But the interesting thing of the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is we really get this wrong, right? We fear these questions when we say, wait a minute, I don't know who I am or there's I failed or something like this disruption in how we think about ourselves when those points are actually growth, right? Because when we enter adulthood, the way we define our sense of self, like, you know, our definition and expectation that we set for ourselves is really based on our external community, right? So that's our family members, our religious affiliation, the communities we live in, the schools we go to, the occupation we choose, right? We pick bits and pieces of that from that and we create this kind of initial cohesive self. Mm. 
And when we grow in adulthood, right, we're always like so interested in growth in young kids. And if kids don't make certain like achievements, we say, oh, we need early interventions. But we miss the fact that we have those same growth cycles in adulthood. And what's happening when they when those occur is that we take those expectations that we set in early adulthood and we say, hmm, wait a minute, that piece of that, like, I've totally outgrown the fact that my uncles think I'm a princess. That doesn't hold water anymore. I'm yeah. going to find that. And so what growth really is through adulthood is a recentering of the expectations we hold for ourselves. And that is really, you know, that's the, the first step in the four steps I talked about that you really need to have this openness to, wait a minute, why do I think that's good or bad? Like, what expectation do I hold? that says, you know, um, I'm successful or I'm not, or I'm happy or I'm not. And um, there's a bunch of exercises in the book to help you do that. And um, it's incredibly enlivening to go through it. I love that so much. And it's interesting. I don't think people always see the power of this. It's like, if you think you're a princess, and let's say you want to meet the love of your life, you know, and if I really believe that, I pr there's probably some men that I would have come across that I wouldn't have gone out with because they were too, like, earthy for me, right? Like, I'm a princess and they seem pretty, you know, they like to hike and do all these outdoory things that I don't want to do. I better not date them. That's a no for me because I'm a princess. It's like the amount of shit you let yourself do or not do because of who you think you are is so insane. I'm really not, I guess this is a good example because I don't think I'm a princess, but I'm not the most outdoorsy. Like I like hiking. Maybe it's because I have Lyme disease that we've just had enough with the ticks. But I like, I, I went fly fishing with a bunch of friends in Utah. And I was like, any sort of fishing is a huge no. I don't like the way they squirm. It just like, it feels really upsetting for me. Anyway, what I didn't know is that you put on that those rubber boots all the way up to your waist and you can stand in a river without like the cooties of the river touching right. your feet. <laughs> and I actually thought it was really fun. And so it's like you try new things on and realize, oh no, I, I do actually like that thing. And you know, I love that we're going through this piece of your book of reimagining your identity. I feel like a lot of my work just focuses on this as a career person. Now, there's an interesting deduction or conclusion I drew from the research, mm. and that is we are our own first audience, right? We always talk about these narratives that we create. And I think what we miss a lot of times is that we are talking to ourselves first before we're really talking to someone else. So it's easy to see how we adopt these limiting assumptions, right? Because we've kind of assumed them thanks to the folks who are around us and telling us, oh, you're such a princess or you're so outdoorsy or whatever it is. And we miss the fact that if we don't spend the time to kind of re-examine those expectations and rethink our narrative, we get to this place where we're believing something that is misaligned with, you know, the things who or the things that really represent who we are, like our own voice. And that's really when we can get into some trouble, because, by the way, people can spend decades in these places where they're kind of just decoupled from, you know, this incredible, unique sense of who they are. And so my work is really about educating people on what's happening and then giving them the tools to begin that cycle of kind of recalibrating and saying, wait a minute, I'm actually kind of cool standing with waders up to my armpits in the middle of a river. That actually was kind of fun, right? It may not have anything to do with what I thought was going to be fun, but right. I actually enjoyed it, right? You know, and I think that there's an openness to that. And what I learned in my research, right, almost 300 people in my research from all walks of life that if we are open to re-examining what's happening at these moments of dis disruption, 
we have the likelihood of positively changing the, the, the trajectory of our lives, right? Time and again, I saw it. Like, all we have to do is begin the conversation and say, wait a minute, what are those expectations, right? And the other thing, you know, we've been talking about around the edges is this, how do I reimagine my identity? Okay, if I used to be, I don't know, equity analyst and I hated it, well, what do I do now, right? And there are ways to really get at that. And, and if we're willing to entertain those conversations with ourselves, instead of like heading for the hills or running the other way, we have an enormous opening that we create. Mm. Okay. You are just like singing my kind of a song. I know that you have a few other spokes here in your book. You talk about reimagining identity, resetting expectations, reframing your emotions. Tell me a little bit about the emotion side of it. Like, you know, I think a lot of this actually is relevant for right now on a deeper level. All of the conversation we're hearing, we're living in such a cool time with um, TV shows and people revisiting their gender, their sexuality, and us starting to see that push for permission, acceptance, regulations to create structures in our world that support the diversity that is the truth yeah. of being human. So some people might be grappling with even their sexuality, like, what is my identity, right? So there's a lot of emotion around that. How do people work within the emotions that can come with Maybe they don't like who they are if they get honest with the truth, right? Like, oh, I don't want to be this person for whatever it is. Like, I don't want to be this kind of a person if this is the truth of me because it's inconvenient and my whole life is about to have to come undone to honor the truth of my new identity that I'm realizing. What would be your message with reimagining the emotions? The whole thing about emotions is we want to really help people externalize the emotions and that sounds like a big word and I don't want it to be, right? When we externalize emotions, we convince our brain, right? We teach our brain to say, I am not the emotion. The emotion is the emotion, right? So that we, like, we'll say, you know, there was this really cool guy, Pascal, who was in my research and he was somebody who was um, coming out, right? It was, it, was, it was his decision to stop living. He was a gay man. He didn't want to live kind of, you know, where he was living within the assumptions around him of him being a straight male and mm. coming out in a different way. And the story wasn't about coming out. It was really about how he needed to set expectations after he came out. Because he's like, it's just as big and scary once you come out. It's like, where do I fit in this whole new world, which is a gay community? Right. You know, I, and, I, and by the way, I'm not the stereotype, you know, I'm not the flamboyant gay male. I'm somebody else. And he's like, you know, it was just as difficult. And really this externalizing allows somebody like Pascal to say, hey, you know, I'm not fearful. That's not a trait I'm not of mine, but I'm feeling fear now, right? So the first step is to recognize that it's impermanent and it isn't a trait because if we believe it to be a trait, then we add meaning to it, right? You know, I know when I was going through my early stages of my own transition, I was like, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. Right. Mm -hmm. Every time I was like, you know, oh, you know, I'm sad. I'm upset. I'm, I'm anxious. I have all this shame about it. I didn't know what to do. And then I quickly layered on, oh, there must be something wrong with me. And so the first steps in reframing emotions teach us to recognize when we lay meaning on top of the emotions that we have, because that can be an enormous sinkhole. Mm. And we begin, then we teach ourselves to ask questions, right? Why does the emotion of shame mean something in our experience? And that's oftentimes a pretty big reflection, right? We, we begin to connect it to other pieces of our experience. And then we step into influence. We say, okay, if we're feeling shame, how does it influence us today, 
right? So we ask to recognize that, oh, by the way, when shame is active for me, I withdraw or I'm overly anxious. So I bark at people who are around me or I get cognitively really confused or my energy is low or I eat too much, like whatever it is, right? And then finally, we use the questions of learning, right? We kind of skip into kind of a, you know, this notion of the emotions are here for a role. What if they were here to teach? Like, what would shame be asking me to learn from its presence? And so all of those things that I've just said actually follow this four-step mnemonic that's interested introduced in the book called HAIL, Honor, Ask, Influence, Learn. And mm-hmm. it's this technique where we teach people so that when shame comes, it isn't overwhelming to us. It is something we can say, okay, shame is here today, but I can keep going. Mm. I love that. Okay, Hale, can you walk us through the H-A-I-L for people who are thinking about that right now and listening? Sure. So Hale is a you know four-step technique that teaches us to externalize or put the emotions outside of ourselves. The first step, H, is to honor, which simply asks us to name Right. So if we're in, you know, as Pascal was in this place when he's like, oh, my goodness, now I'm in the gay community. It's like overwhelming. I don't know how what to do. And it was was like, I have more than a stomachache here. Like I'm frozen. And so it's like, okay, Pascal, we're just going to we're just going to name what's here. What emotions are you feeling today right now? So the first step honor is really asking people to try to bring their awareness to the emotions that are active for them and to recognize, if at all, any meaning they're applying to it, right? You know, Pascal could have easily said, oh my gosh, I feel so overwhelmed. Maybe there's something wrong with me or, you know, what have you. And so the second step is ask. The A inhale is ask. And for ask, we ask why an emotion like shame holds meaning for us, right? And, you know, all of a sudden we say, you know, like I know in my experience, you know, shame was something that I learned in my household, right? It was something that was active when I was a young child. So when we ask, We draw in our lived experience into the presence of an emotion, right? I, right, H-A-I, is influence, right? We try to recognize how that emotion is influencing us today, right? You know, Pascal would say, it was so overwhelming, I didn't sleep. And then I was so distracted at work, I was getting in trouble because I wasn't functioning right and I wasn't performing. And right, so it was this whole spiral. So Mm -hmm. influence just asks us to bring our, our awareness to how that imprints, right? That presence of that emotion, how it's imprinting on us. Mm. And finally, the learn is really asking us if just pretend for a minute, the emotion is present to teach us something. Just, right? Just pretend, even though that might be hard. Why would shame be present? What do you think it might want us to learn? And Pascal was really quick about that. He's like, you know, I think it would want me to understand that my choice of living one way and now choosing to be another way is a, a, an expression of strength. It's not shame. It was the way I could navigate this, right? And so it was a very freeing release. And that's what this tool allows people to do. It allows us to recognize emotions that are active, but also helps us reframe them, right? Move around them so that we can be with them with a new energy. It's almost like a reset to have emotions with us. I love that you're sharing this because I feel like with identity and with change comes usually a lot of emotions. Like it's so key that you look at that because it's like, that's what keeps you from honoring it, right? Like if you're feeling all these emotions and you're indulgent in them, there's such a fine line between feeling emotions and indulging and getting lost in them. Well, I interrupt you for one second. That's why I purposely use the word honor 
right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to judge. None of this work is going to judge us, right? It's okay. We're all going to have days where, yep, maybe the anxiety or the sadness or the perfectionism is just out of control, right? Mm-hmm. But we're not going to judge us. These All these techniques provide an on-ramp for us to kind of get at this opening that's possible for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's put in a way that isn't judgmental in any way. I love that. And I know that a lot of people, they're going to do the identity, they're going to do the emotions. And then you talk about in your book, expectations. I feel like, you know, what's been coming forward as I'm listening to you speak is one of my favorite people in my life. She is an amazing human being. And out of nowhere, she fell in love with a woman, didn't even know that was like on the table. And we were talking the other day because she hasn't really come out to her family about it, but they've been together a while. And, you know, she's spending a lot of time going back in her memory trying to get proof for like, oh, this must be who I am. Because she's like, did I have a crush on my preschool teacher? Or like, did I like Britney Spears more than I think I did? Like, she's trying to look for proof that this must have been the identity that was already there. And I was telling her, I I feel like you're wasting your time. Like, you can do that, but why not just use all that energy to accept the truth of where you are now? Is that you're, you love this woman, you're in a really happy thing. and. I don't know what comes up for me is around like self-acceptance, expectations. So anything around that I think would be really cool to share because you're just full of information. (laughs) You know, I I feel so fortunate in that I found this topic because I went through a period that I maybe like your friend really was like grasping at like, how can I make sense of this? And my experience was one to really look at data. And so I went and created an awful lot of research. So I get to pull on that as I respond to you. And what I would say for people who are really looking like your friend, right? Some of us can really be informed by the past, right? The past can help us, right? And some are active in that and some it doesn't work so much for. And we're again, we're not going to judge, right? The techniques in the book allow us to ask them questions from all of our lived experience. But what it doesn't allow us to do is be past focused. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble, right? Where we say, oh, I was this in the past, so therefore I have to be, right? We want to be open and and we release being past focus through the work in the book. And we really look at what holds value and meaning to us now. Because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, one thing we don't really pay a lot of attention to in our society is that what holds value and meaning to us is fluid in our lives. It is not fixed. Right. And so, you know what? There could be someone who, for whatever reason, was a certain way for a long time and then it shifted. And that's okay. And sometimes it shifts because a tragic event. And sometimes it shifts because there's an incredibly happy event and everything in between. And, you know, I met this man through my research and I talk about him in the book. And he is somebody who started the interview saying to me, Linda, I see so much more now. And the fascinating thing was this gentleman had no sight. Mm. Okay, and and the reason why he came to that is he went through this process of re-examining the assumptions, right? Reimagining his identity, reconstituting how he connected with others, and frankly, then himself. And then he worked on, you know, using reframing techniques like Hale when his emotions were trying to really, you know, staple his feet to the ground. And because of that, he got to a point when, in fact, he couldn't. He's like, Linda, I can't see what you look like or what you have on. But I now know that this was not about my sight. This was about my connection to me. Mm. And this has allowed me to be so much different. And I'm grateful. And so I just think, I think that's, you know, Ashley, that's the best I can give you that, you know, who we are and what holds value and meaning to us has the potential to shift. 
Yeah. And we need to greet that at different times of our lives. And I guess like what comes up for me is just this idea of self-acceptance. Like dancing with disruption, it could feel like a really shitty dance for some people. You know what I mean? Like it's a great dance and it's one I like to do. But for some people, it's like, oh, man, I I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be who I am. I don't want to accept me. And self-acceptance, I think, is different than resignation, right? A lot of people think acceptance is resignation. I think there's a belief there. Like, I guess I just have to be me now and that, you know, I don't like me. But it's like, no, you get to celebrate who you are. This choice, Ashley, that's the yeah. thing. At the really early part of the book, that's the topic we go through, which is choice and really trying to think of what choice means for us. Like there was these two women, I really love both of them. One of them said, you know, I chose the law because I hate choices. And mm. watch, once I chose the law, everything else was already chosen for me. I wasn't going to have to make another choice, right? And I thought that was fascinating. This other lady said to me, you know, my dad never went to college. He really wanted me to be a teacher. You know, I made that choice, you know, early on. And she said, you know, now I'm like in my late 40s and I've never really chosen on my own, right? So I just say that, you know, we can all decide to choose and we all have a different relationship with choice. And I think that part of the work of kind of forgiving ourselves is to recognize that um, if we bring our awareness to kind of how we got to where we are and the things that hold value and meaning to us, it doesn't really matter like what it is that brought us to that moment. It is an enormous expansion, right? It just, it is. We see what's right in front of us in a radically different way. I think you touched on something that people don't pay enough attention to, in my opinion, at least, and is that it doesn't always matter how you got there. It just sometimes matters that you're there. And I think also in self-development and growth and trauma and healing, people spend a lot of time, you know, and I've done it, like, why am I this way that I am? And going back into the literal bowels of my childhood. <laughs> and it, sometimes it's just like, I guess maybe I don't have to figure out why I'm this way. Maybe I just need to accept that I am. I guess, is there anything I have not asked you? I mean, your book is rich with information. So anything that would make this conversation feel incomplete if you didn't share about it before we go? You know, I just have to say that time and again, the people who were willing to say they were willing to explore what was happening at disruption, describe their experience with words like joy, enlivening, peace, free. And it was consistent. It wasn't like, oh, a few of them said it. Every one of them said it. And so my work does something that's really important. It shifts us away from the experience that initiates the dis disruption, right? It isn't like, oh, the health crisis, oh, the job loss, oh, the divorce, oh, the remarriage, right? All of those things are simply described as initiating circumstances, right? But what we talk about is their impact on how we think about ourselves. And mm. that's where the work is. And that's where it all is. And the great news is if we're willing to entertain a new conversation and respond differently, there's incredible goodness that comes out of it. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. Where can everybody find you? I know that your book, Dancing with Disruption, is on Amazon or probably other places books are sold. But where else can people go? Yes. So the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn, right? Linda Rossetti or on my website. My last name is a little tricky, two S's and two T's, but really easy to find me. Both places have a lot of information about the research and work that I do. 
And the book is available, you know, pretty much everywhere books are sold and as well as available at many public libraries. And it's available in audio and ebook as well as print. I hope people get a copy. Mm -hmm. Thank you again for coming on. Ashley, it's been an honor. Great, great thanks to having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.